Father, we come before you recognizing your greatness and how you have set history in order so that we might have the opportunity to be saved. We thank you that you are a God of mercy, but we understand also you are a God of justice and you will judge every single sin. We thank you for the forgiveness that you offer for that judgment. But we had asked, Lord, that you would help us to understand the ministry of Paul and how he went out on that first missionary journey and how you called him out of darkness, even though he was a respected and learned Jew. We ask that you would use those Jewish people even today to bear testimony of who your son Jesus, Yeshua, the Mashiach, who he is and what he has done for us. So, Father, we ask for your wisdom, your insight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, for those believers who have gone before us and who have given everything, including their lives, for the sake of the gospel, I talked about them last week, at least a couple of examples, John uh, Chow and Jim Elliott and Blandina, and of course, at the very least, Paul was willing to endure extreme hardship for the sake of Jesus Christ because he understood what it meant. He was willing to sacrifice everything in order to get the gospel out and to serve him as God wanted him to. And last week, I focused some time on how the Jews, they, they were in Antioch and they followed Paul around and they ended up poisoning the minds of some of the Jews and the Gentiles so that they had this plot that was put together so that Paul would be stoned, not only harassed, but stoned to death. And we're going to end up reading about that today. But one of the counteract, uh, counteractions that we can have to those people who persecute us and who poison the minds is, first of all, think of whatever is true, holy, righteous, just. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Make sure we're not constantly taking in the world and what the world has to offer. Focus on the scriptures, maybe listen to the Bible, certainly read the Bible if you don't listen to it. And read another biblical um, book that is out there or listen to messages, listen to sermons. And if you do that, that will help keep your mind prepared and washed as the way it should be. And that's the purpose of the word. Now, also, this idea that some of the minds of the Jews and the Gentiles were poisoned against Paul and Barnabas and Paul decided to become even more bold in speaking the truth. And he opposed those who were against the gospel. And God so wanted the people to believe the message that these two were bringing that he allowed Paul and Barnabas to perform miracles to back up their message. Now, this was something that was new. The gospel was going out. And in order for some to believe, there needed to be some type of miraculous action that took place where the people would say, wow, this is... This is a miracle. This is a wonder. I'm going to wonder why this is happening. Something that seems to break the laws of nature that we currently operate in. And it says in verse 3 of chapter 14, So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. This is in Iconium. Speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. And there was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding countries. 
where they continued to preach the good news. If you think you ever want to go on a missionary adventure, now mostly unless you're called to full-time missionary work, we have the opportunity to go for a week or two, maybe 10 days, and to reach out to others. Now, we've done several things I think you know. Uh, we go out and help with disaster relief. We uh, are participating in going to Uganda and to um, Cambodia and Vietnam and, and different places where we give the gospel. We hold medical clinics, I think, as most of you know. And then we give the gospel, and they go through a gospel station. We give them medication, eyeglasses, that type of thing. And sometimes the dentistry, we have the dentistry involved with that as well. And to go out, you have to be prepared to go out. When we originally were in church at Calvary Chapel of Mesa, there was a woman who was there, a wonderful sister in the Lord. She ended up teaching in the school. Her name was Gretchen. And Gretchen decided she wanted to be a missionary to Africa. And so she actually packed up and she went to Africa and she felt that she just wasn't cut out for it once she got there. And maybe because it was a lack of preparation or knowledge or what it was all about, but she just left and she went to Africa, but she came back discouraged that she felt she was a failure. And I think she was anything but a failure, but I think the lack of preparation going over there and understanding who the people are and what is entailed in going to a continent like that, it, it's something that can be overwhelming. Well, for missionaries, there needs to be a little bit of a manual. Like, what do you do when you go out into a mission field and what should you be prepared for? Well, the first thing I think you need to be prepared for is an effective work will bring the enemy's wrath. If you go to a particular country like India today, there are parts of India that if you go to, they will seek to take your life. Or the Sudan, uh, far-reaching ministries, uh, the people that run that, they had a compound in Sudan. And in Sudan, during the civil war that was there, and their compound actually got bombed directly in the compound. And they would train these missionaries, these chaplains in the military to go out. And they would explain to them that as you're going out, you may not come back. You may lose your life in this civil war being a, a chaplain. And they understood that. And you can go on their website and you can see photographs, pictures of the work that they're carrying on. We currently support them as well. But you will receive opposition. And in India, I can remember we went down to... Uh, La Gloria, Mexico, to build houses for some of the poor who were down there. And as we were there, they, they run through in Mexico Caravan Ministries, they run through interns where they served down there for a year. They learned how to do cross-cultural ministry. And I can remember one of our trips, we did several down there. One of our trips, we went down there and there was this young lady and she, I think she was the daughter of a pastor and she had this vision for going to the most far reaches of India. Just get, she goes, I want to get lost in India and do the work for the Lord up there. And that, in fact, was the most dangerous part that she could go to. But she had this desire to go up into that area. I don't know whatever happened to her or if she's still there currently reaching others with the gospel. But I do know this, that in that area she would receive stiff opposition. So opposition is certain to occur where there is a positive response to the gospel. Where people are accepting Christ, others are going to say, why would you do that? Now, in the past, I've, 
I've told this story. When I was in high school, in, in elementary school too, going all the way through high school, there was a guy that lived not too far from me. His name was Larry Lawrence. And Larry Lawrence, and not the big uh, billionaire Larry Lawrence, I think he passed away years ago, that used to live in Coronado. But this guy, Larry Lawrence, went all the way through school with him. And I found out in high school that he was leaving to go to seminary. And my immediate reaction was, and forcefully so, was, what a waste to go to seminary. God has a sense of humor. I went to seminary. But he went to seminary, and at that time I thought, why are you doing that? You're just wasting your life. Don't go in that direction. And he was receiving pushback from me in my heart. I never went up to him and said, you fool, why are you going to seminary? I, I never did anything like that to him, but I knew that he had grown up, or at least I found out he had grown up in a church and the Lord had called him. And so he is going to go on and be a pastor. I don't know where he is to this day, but inside I was opposing him. When I became a Christian and I went home and I tried to evangelize a whole family, boy, did I get pushback on that and people say well who do you think you are holier than thou you know you you have a saint now you halo you know the sarcasm comes out And, and so whenever you go out and try to do an effective work where people actually start to turn towards jesus christ and they receive the gospel others are going to say what when i got saved i was dating this girl and i told her that i'd become a christian she immediately just went back and go Oh, you did? And I said, yeah, I did. She goes, well, my experience with Christians is not a very good one. Well, needless to say, I didn't marry her. I, I married a Christian. We ended up breaking up after that. But there's going to be opposition. And, you know, I wanted to share with everybody around me. I can remember sharing with my high school friends. And, and there was a trip that we took to Mammoth Mountain. We used to ski at that point. And my neighbor and another buddy, we, uh, three of us, we drove all night to get up to Mammoth and to ski all day and then stay at Whiskey Creek, the condos that are there. And, and the whole way up, they heard nothing but the gospel. I mean, literally, I was telling them what's going to happen in the end times, what is in the future, and Jesus Christ is coming back, and the mark of the beast, and the seven-year tribulation. And both of them were just like, Really? And one of them became a Christian. The other one, not so much. Uh, he didn't. But find ways where you just witness to people. And there's going to end up being opposition. And we have to be prepared for that. And also Satan will use violence and even death to present or prevent the truth from being communicated. Just look at the truth that is out there today in our culture. The, the truth that is meant to be suppressed. Like I told you, I'm going to talk about uh, what it is to be a man. There's a little bit of confusion in our society today about what what it is to be a man. And it's turning into this vitriolic debate back and forth. And those people who are opposed to the truth are actually trying to do damage to those who are speaking the truth. 
whether they take down their tables or canopies or their signs and they, they just come in and they'll actually start attacking those who have differing views on what gender is and who can get pregnant, birthing persons, and it's no longer a breastfeeder who is out there, it's a chest feeder who is out there. We're just getting a little confused. And the truth that is trying to arise through the ranks is just being suppressed and opposed. And that's the worldly view of what the culture should be. That is not even the biblical view. If you bring a biblical uh, teaching like that, it's met with even more opposition in our society. Now, is there ever a case where something was happening that was good, even though it was terrible at the same time in Scripture that God did through an individual where it was just greatly opposed? And there is. There's a couple of stories, but I'll give you one. Remember this woman by the name of Jezebel? Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. Now she was definitely a wicked woman. She was not a woman that you would want to become your wife and you should never name a daughter Jezebel. Now this particular woman existed with her husband Ahab. Ahab was the king and that was his wife Jezebel. There was this mountain and we're going to go to this mountain in Israel, Mount Carmel. And when you're standing on the top of Mount Carmel, you can look towards the west and you have the ocean and you can look towards the east and you can see the Valley of Megiddo, which is there. And then there's the Jezreel Valley that runs through there. And it's quite a sight to see. And we'll go up on the top of Mount Carmel where Elijah was up there and he challenged the prophets of Baal. There were 450 prophets that came to this challenge. And what Elijah did, he said, let's have a contest. Let's see if your God is real or if my God, the one whom I serve, is real. This is Elijah speaking. And he said, let's do this. Let's take two bulls. You pick one. Go ahead, you pick first, and I'll take the other one, and you cut it up, make a sacrifice, put it on an altar, and you ask your God to call down fire from heaven. It would have been a sight to see this pillar of fire just coming down and consuming uh, this particular sacrifice. And he challenged them, said, if your God is real, have your God consume this bull on this altar, and we'll call him God. And then if he doesn't, then I'll give it a shot. And we'll see what happens. This is Bill's version of the Old Testament. And so as they're setting this up, they did it from morning till noon. They were chanting to their God. They were cutting themselves, trying to appease their God, the God Baal. And nothing happened. And if you read the New Living Translation or the Living Bible, Paul starts to taunt them. And he said, where is your God? Is he sleeping? Is he taking a rest? Or maybe, and again, this is in the living version of the Bible. It says, maybe he's on the toilet. You know, where is he? And, and so he's just taunting them. And he goes, okay, that's enough. And he says, okay, I'm going to do it now. So he restores this altar, which is up there. He cuts up the bull. He puts the bull on top. He digs a trench around this altar. And in that trench falls the water. They get water, maybe 15 to 20 liters of water. And they pull it, pour it over the bull. And as that water goes down, it fills up the trench that is around that. And so he steps to the side and he says, Lord, you know, please answer me. Show everybody that you are God. And what happens is, and I can imagine just seeing it come down from the sky. 
this fire comes down just just right on the sacrifice. It burns up not only the sacrifice, but the rocks and the dirt and the soil, and it's all gone. Now, how long would that take? Long enough for you to just sit there and go, this is serious. This, it wouldn't just happen maybe in 30 seconds. It, it might take one to five minutes for this to happen. And when it's all said and done, everybody's mouths are just open. They've probably fallen back. They can't believe what has taken place. And at that point, Elijah stands up and he tells everybody who's there, grab those prophets of Baal, take them and follow me. And he took them down to the valley of Jezreel and they slaughtered all the idolaters, all the idolaters priests who were down there, he slew them all. After that, Elijah went back up onto Mount Carmel and he started praying there. Now, apparently Ahab was up there and he started praying for rain to come because there had been a drought in the, in the country at that particular point. And so he started praying and seven times he went to his servant and said, go and check, go look towards the Mediterranean Sea and see if you see a cloud. Seven times the servant went there. Seven times, six times he came back and said, nope, nothing. Clear skies out there. The seventh time he came back and he goes, there's this little cloud on the horizon. Just a little thing that is out there. So he turns to Ahab and he says, Mount up your chariot and get out of here because you're not going to have time to make it back to where you need to go to be with your wife, Jezebel. And he would have gone down the Jezreel Valley, which would have turned into mud at that particular point. And so he gets on his chariot and he starts riding his chariot 99 miles to get where he needs to go. And then it says the power of the Lord came on Elijah And what did Elijah do? He took his cloak. Now, the cloak was the outer garment that somebody would sleep in. They would have their garments on, but they'd put this cloak on the outside. And so he takes this cloak and he says he pulled it up and put it in his belt. What do you think he did? He ran 99 miles and he beat Ahab. Have you thought about that? 99 miles, like Superman. To, to beat a chariot and go 99 miles and he beats him to, to the destination. And it's like, wow, this is incredible. And then after that, Jezebel hears from Ahab what Elijah did and this was her response. She said, she, she sent a messenger to Elijah and told the messenger to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And so he had this threat against him. Of course, at this particular time, Elijah, fear fell upon him, and he went into the wilderness, and he thought he was going to be attacked. He thought he was the only one left. And God said, no, there are thousands that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And he encouraged them. But definitely Jezebel, she was one that was just wicked. Wanting to, she was the one that was really leading her husband around in what he should and should not do. <clears throat> and because of that, she ended up being judged. And there was a prophecy made about her that she would not be buried. And, of course, she fell out of a window, pushed out of a window. And when her body hit the ground, she died. 
And as a result of that, wild dogs came, and all that were left were her hands and her head, and the rest of the body had been consumed. And so there is a time where if you're doing something that is the will of God, spreading the gospel, or back then just God, or Elijah proclaiming what God's will was, there's going to be opposition, and it not only can be violent, but it can lead to somebody's death. And that's why Elijah feared. The same thing can apply to us. We will receive opposition if we go out there. Now, the second point on this, uh, this idea that you would give uh, missionaries instruction like a manual for missionaries, the second thing is failure to be saved is the result of unwillingness and not destiny. This idea that the Paul and Barnabas would go out, they would give the gospel, and there were half the city would be for them, half the Jews, and half the Jews would be against them. Same thing with the Gentiles that would hear the message. And there is a false idea by some that the reason people don't get saved when they could is a result of God determining that they shouldn't be saved. Now, I want to clarify that. There is this doctrine out there that God determines who is going to be saved and who is going to be damned. And he says, no matter what, or this particular doctrine says, no matter what, you will not be able to be saved and you are going to be condemned to hell. I believe this is a pernicious and a malicious doctrine. I don't believe that's what scripture teaches at all. I think you have to twist scripture in order to get it to say that. Now, the reason people do not get saved is because they refuse to accept the gospel message. I've had that happen where I give the message. And sometimes you can tell that the people, when you're witnessing to them, there's a point. And I think my wife told me once, it's discernment. Where you can tell the person you're witnessing to just kind of glazes over. And it's like, you know, it's done. You don't give them any more. They don't want to hear any more. You're just finished. And they don't want to hear it. Now, that I believe that is spiritual. I believe the enemy is coming in at that particular point. And also their flesh is rising up to where they don't want to hear what you have to say any further. But we have several examples in Scripture of people where they refuse to obey the gospel refused to obey God. Acts chapter 7 verse 39, which we have covered previously. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. And this is referring to Moses leading the people out of Egypt. In Second Thessalonians 2, 9 through 10, it says, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracle signs and wonders and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So God gives us the ability to choose to be saved. But there are some who hold to this doctrine that no, there are some who will never be saved. And I think that is wrong. God is not willing that any should perish. God wants everyone to be saved. God does not take delight in the death of the wicked. He wants people to come to salvation, but he has given us a free will and we can choose to accept or reject the gospel. And so when a missionary goes out and they think that people aren't getting saved, it's because of their unwillingness. You know, if, if you go back in history, the Noah in the book of Genesis chapter six, seven, and eight, he was a preacher of the gospel. Nobody got saved, but his own family. For how many years? 120 years? Nobody? Not one person? Yeah, it's difficult. It's because they refused. They didn't want to hear the message. The third thing in this manual for missionaries 
Effectiveness plus opposition equals increased effort and boldness. So when you get the opposition, if you're witnessing out there, I think you have the ability within you, I have the ability to be even more bold, to stand up to somebody. And of course, you have to have a little bit of information, knowledge under your belt. If you're going to engage somebody, you want to be able to meet them on their terms, understanding what their opposition is, what it's rooted in, whether it's worldview, whether it's cultural upbringing, and be able to respond to those things. But you don't have to pull back if somebody says, stop telling me the gospel. Okay, scripture says don't. Don't cast your pearls before swine. But if you start getting a couple of people around you and they start pestering you with these different questions and objections, take one at a time. And you say, well, this is the answer to that. And just stick on that, but be more bold. Don't back down. Don't say, it was just so difficult. I didn't want to do that anymore. And I felt bad. I was getting uncomfortable. So I went, I left. You don't have to do that. Stand up. You have the God of the universe living inside of you who can give you the words you need to speak to be a witness. And I'll tell you, it's pretty exhilarating to do that. Just stand up. Sometimes you get a little nervous, a little shaky on the inside, but you take a deep breath, swallow. You know, you don't want to keep talking without swallowing. And, and, and then you stop, pray, be patient, give them the information. And, and it's a, a wonderful thing to see somebody who is in opposition to you if the Lord gives you wisdom to stop their opposition. I'm going to give you an example of this. I was watching... A, little video <clears throat> and this video had you guys know who matt walsh is matt walsh uh, made the production what is a woman uh, if you've seen that i recommend that that you see that but he was at a universe i think it was a university and he was speaking to somebody who was a transsexual who was asking him a question and the person asking the question was a paramedic and they were trying to make the case that there are several different genders out there. And, and, and he, he made the fallacy, the bandwagon fallacy or the appeal to authority that there are so many different people, experts that will teach you there are many different genders. There's not just two genders, male and female. And so Matt Walsh, he stepped back and he said, okay, you said you're an EMT, right? So he's talking to this guy and this EMT said, yes, that's correct. And he goes, well, let me get this straight. If you are on a call and you meet somebody who identifies as a woman who is a man and they tell you they think they're experiencing a miscarriage, would you check for the miscarriage? And the person fell silent. There was nothing they could say. Well, no, that's not going to be a medical condition. A condition. But the person who thinks they're a female that's actually a male is not going to be experiencing a miscarriage. And you saw the whole thing. And the whole crowd just goes, ooh. And he fell silent. It's like, wow. The, the Lord used him, because Matt Walsh, he is a believer. He actually is holding to Vatican I. He hears the Mass in Latin. He's like hardcore uh, Catholic, but he professes Jesus Christ. And the Lord was able to shut down the opposition. And when that happens, normally, if you're in a, a venue that gives itself to this, you will experience violence or ad hominem attacks. They will start attacking you. But this person, they knew they had been had, and they just fell silent. They didn't say anything. It was like a pregnant silent, no pun intended. It was this idea that 
They had nothing to say, and everybody in the room knew it, that there was no argument. And God can do that. If you're preparing yourself, if you know the scriptures, if you're up in the culture, you know what's happening around you and, and throughout the world and what has happened in history. If, if you bone up on those things and you also know what logical fallacies are, you're able to shut these things down and God will use you. And that's why Paul was used in such a bold fashion. Because he knew his stuff. He knew his Old Testament. And he also knew Jesus Christ. He spent time with Christ after the resurrection. And Christ himself instructed Paul. And so he had all that ready to go. So the effectiveness of the plus opposition equals increased effort and boldness. And after some of the Jews had poisoned the mind of some of those in Iconium, Paul just ramped it up. He spoke even more boldly. He didn't back down. And I think it's a lesson for us not to back down or stop completely when you receive opposition in sharing Jesus with others. And when I say this, I don't mean beat them over the head if they're not complying. You don't want to do that. There's a phrase I know that became popular in 50s and 60s and 70s, Bible thumpers, where you take the Bible and you thump it or you hit the person over the head with the Bible and the bigger the Bible, the better off. My grandmother, uh, she used to support, I think, uh, Jerry Falwell and his ministry and she had this big white Bible. It was just like massive, you know, and it, it going to church i'm bringing that thing to church you know and it shows how spiritual i am the bigger the bible the more the spiritual and and it's not the case with that you can have a small bible and instead of the sword of god you can have the dagger is what you can have and you can open that up and you can use that just as effectively but this idea you don't want to thump somebody over the head and get them to comply by making them capitulate and you put your boot on their neck God wants us to share his love. He also wants us to share the idea of the cross and sin which is out there. We can't avoid that. We have to tell people. And just the preaching of the gospel, both the good news and the bad news, brings an offense. Because it tells people, you're not all you're supposed to be. You're not perfect. And um, I was also listening to Charlie Kirk. You know who Charlie Kirk is? He said in school, when he was in school that they used to have this sign up there and the sign says you are perfect just the way you are so he scratched his head he went to his teacher and he said then why am I here if I'm perfect just the way I am why am I here and of course that's the culture oh you're just fine you're wonderful and no we're not we're learning to be better that's why you go to school that's why we go to church that's why we fellowship that's why we read the word and so going back here Verse 3, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there at Iconium speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs. So when do you stop speaking? Well, if they kill you, you can stop speaking then. But Paul, what he did, he knew the opposition was coming. And in verse 6, as we have covered it says they went to the cities of Lystra and Derby, Lyconian cities that were in also the surrounding counties and God enabled them to do miracles and there was a plot afoot like I said to mistreat them and to stone them and so they decided to take off you, you don't have to stick around in opposition if you're going to be beaten to death 
You don't, you know, it's like flee and live to fight another day. And he went on and was even more bold. In verse 8 it says, In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet! At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human, like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So they wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas. Now, what is the difference between worship and honor? Worship is directed only to one being, and that is God. And that's where you would bow down, prostrate yourself, maybe flatten your face, get down on your knees, raise your hands to heaven, call upon God, saying, you are the only one who is worthy, singing praise songs to him, giving him glory for all that he has done. You would never do that to any person. But that's how we're supposed to honor God. Well, how do you honor a person? You don't raise hand, praise the Lord, oh, you're so wonderful, and you bow down. No, you're not supposed to do any of that. So, so how do you do this? But first, we know that Jesus was worshipped. The Magi, in Matthew chapter 2, they came, bowed down, and worshipped to the two-year-old Jesus at that point and they were not instructed not to at least we don't have that in scripture we also have the disciples they worship Jesus in Matthew chapter 14 verse 32 this is where Jesus is walking across the sea of Galilee and when we get there and you see the sea of Galilee to the north by the way it's below sea level i think 6 or 700 feet below sea level and to the north are these mountains and what happens is the wind blows down and the pressure is lowered so the wind comes whipping across the sea of Galilee and create huge waves of course the disciples are out there and Jesus comes to them on the water and he's walking on the water in this particular storm And when the wind died down and he got inside the boat, they began to worship him saying that truly you are the son of God. So they were worshiping in the boat. And I think we're going to get in a boat. And usually what they do is they bring you out to the middle of the Sea of Galilee and they turn off the engine. They say, yeah, about right here, maybe in this vicinity is where Jesus walked out to them on the Sea of Galilee. And then also in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to a mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Of course, this is after the resurrection. Luke chapter 24, verse 50, 
It says, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. The word that is used there, proskuneos, it is the word for worship. It is not the word for, as some translations, false translations would say, obeisance, where you just simply honor the person. The woman at the tomb, they worship Jesus. And the man born blind in John chapter 9, verse 38, they all worship Jesus. Now, to honor someone, you show them respect, deference, esteem, admiration, reverence, even veneration, but never bowing down to worship. Now, I'm old enough to know some stuff about World War II, not that I was alive during World War II, but this is something they used to teach in world history, was World War II. You guys remember somebody by the name of Audie Murphy? Audie Murphy was a war hero in World War II, highly decorated, and he ended up becoming an actor. And the guy, he was just pint-sized. He was not very tall at all, but they put him in several movies because he was a hero. Who are the heroes today? Dylan Mulvaney? You know, if you know who that is, not a hero. That's not a person who is there. Is it a football player? That's a hero? You know, maybe, maybe there's someone you look to as the best football player of all time. Is that the hero? I don't think that they've really sacrificed much except for their time, maybe some of their money to pay for promotions. But who is somebody who has sacrificed themselves and their goods and things that they had, their service, in order that others may benefit? They've done this on purpose. There is no hero out there today that you can point to and say, you're a hero. Now, they tried to do that with Mr. Zelensky. They tried to make him into a hero, but we're finding out things aren't quite as cool as they should be in paradise. You know, so who out there has truly laid down everything that they have for someone else? There are no heroes today. And I think that that's a tragedy. People who set their lives just to help others. You know, maybe in Christendom we've had some heroes in the past, certainly those who have sacrificed or been able to sacrifice their own life for the sake of the gospel or maybe a translation of the Bible. Maybe one of the last ones we've had, uh, Billy Graham, Bill Bright, these people, they step out there, but they're not promoted in the world system. And so we have no heroes today. And that's sad, but we need to promote that to the next generation, that there should be heroes, people that you can look to, people that you can honor, people that you can esteem and and reverence and venerate, Uh, lift them up and say, that's a person that needs to be followed. And even in the conservative media out there, I I don't know that we can point to somebody who is, in fact, a hero. Now, there's controversy about Trump and DeSantis and uh, Biden and who's the hero and who's not the hero. And it's difficult to kind of pinpoint that because there's so much animosity between people. There's no one that we can point to universally and say they are a hero. Uh, wait, I, I think there is one person that is uh, looked to, Keanu Reeves. I don't know if you know anything about his history, but uh, he's given away like 90% of his income. His daughter died his wife died Uh, he always has good things to say about other people 
And on the internet in this generation, if you follow what they're doing, they, they say Keanu Reeves is a guy that is to be honored just because he has sacrificed so much. So I, I would say if there's anybody that comes close, do a research on his life and what has happened to him. I would say maybe. I don't know so much about the John Wick movies and all the shoot 'em up and all of that stuff and killing his dog. I, I have no idea about that. But just as a person, it seems like he could be somebody that individuals would look to as far as how they should act just in a cultural sense. Then verse 19, it says, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and this is Antioch Pisidium, which is up. It's not the Antioch, which is north of Jerusalem. And won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city the next day. He and Barnabas left for Derby. He went out and got stoned. Maybe I should rephrase that. He, he was giving the gospel out there, and they decided they had had enough, and they took him out, and they stoned him. Now, if you've looked up, how was this process of stoning, how did it take place? How did they do it exactly? And if you look back to some of the ancient rabbis, they, they have some information of how they would do it. Now, the scripture says you're not to lay a hand on them, you're to stone them. And so what they would do is, according to these rabbis, is they would take the individual who was to be stoned and they would take them up on a precipice of some kind and it would have to be high enough that if you fell down onto a stone pavement, you would die but not so high that the body would be disfigured. And so the first thing that they said you would have to do is take this person to this precipice or to this tower and push them off. And if they didn't die, it says the first person who has something against them is to take a stone, a large stone, and throw it as hard as they can into the chest of the individual. If the person did not die after that, then all the rest of the people who were there were to participate in the stoning and pile stones on them. So if this is what was taking place, we don't know for sure, but if you read uh, the ancient rabbis, this is what they said they had to do according to their idea of scripture. Take the person up, push him off. He's not dead yet, you know. And, and so they get this rock, a big rock. You know, it usually... It would be a rock so big it would be difficult to lift, but you could probably lift it over your head and throw it down. Now, I don't know about you. What do they call those things? Medicine balls or something that you pick up and you swing around? I haven't been to the gym in years. But you, you pick it up and they're heavy. You know, what if you had one that was 25 or 50 pounds? Now, I handle bags that are 50 pounds all the time on a regular basis. And getting older, you know, you pick those things. Oh, man, this thing's heavy. Imagine it's a 50-pound rock. And it's thrown into the chest of the individual. And then after that, they, the rabbis, they said they wanted the death to be as quick and painless. The plan words there. Painless as possible. They wanted it to happen rapidly. And so what they would do after that is they would focus on the head and try to kill. And this is what they did for capital punishment cases. Now, there were 10 capital crimes that the Jews had in mind from scripture. These are the 10 capital crimes. If you worshiped other gods or heavenly bodies, you were to be stoned. 
If you enticed others to worship other gods, you were to be stoned. If you blasphemed against God, you were to be stoned. If you offered your child in sacrifice to Molech, you were to be stoned. If there was spiritual divination, you talked to the dead, that type of thing, tried to tell the future, you were to be stoned. If you broke the Sabbath, you couldn't do any work on the Sabbath, you were to be stoned. If you committed adultery, you were to be stoned. You know, King David committed adultery, but he wasn't stoned. God's mercy came in on that. Disobedience of a son. Maybe that should be reinstalled. I don't know. Some of the sons that go wayward, you know, and in the Old Testament, if a son ever went wayward, they could take him to the elders of the city and they could stone the son. Now, I've done a little research on this in the past. I don't know that there's ever an example of a son being stoned uh, because of disobedience, but that was in Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 through 21. Also, the violation of the harem. The harem is... Things dedicated to God. What happened when Joshua was was on the other side of the Jordan, they crossed over the Jordan. All the males got circumcised once they crossed over the Jordan. And of course, the Jordan parted. The Ark of the Covenant went first and the, the Jordan parted just like the Red Sea. And when they got on the other side and all the men were healed, God told Joshua, okay, go against the city of Jericho. Now we're going to go to Jericho. And as we go to Jericho, you will see, they'll tell you that these are, this is where the walls fell down. They have some excavations around there. And when they went there, God instructed them that they were not to take anything, no plunder from the city. It was all dedicated to God. So if they broke in somewhere and there were some riches, some gold, some silver, some fine linen, some clothing, something like that, it all belonged to God. That was the harem. That is the dedicated thing to God. And if you messed with that, you were to be stoned. And what happened right after this in Jericho is a guy by the name of Achan. Achan saw some Babylonian garments. He thought they were real beautiful. I think he grabbed, I think it was silver he grabbed it, buried it in his tent. And after that, they went to a battle and they said, oh, you know, only need about 3,000 guys. You don't need to take anybody else. But they got routed and they didn't win. And so Joshua said, what is going on? And so they cast lots. They found out who the guy was and he came forward and Joshua says, now, my son, confess what you have done. Tell me the good report. Well, after that, they stoned him. And they said, you, you, this is never going to happen again. And so he got stoned as a result of the harem. He took some of the things dedicated to God. And the final thing was if an ox that you knew could kill somebody and it killed somebody, you were guilty and the ox and the person was to be stoned. So those are the 10 things that from the Old Testament stoning was to take place. And of course, they would have accused Paul and Barnabas of blasphemy, and that's why they would have stoned them. Now, when should you stop talking? If you're going to avoid stoning, I think it's a good idea to stop talking. If somebody's going to open up fire with a a firearm and you're there, I think it's a good idea to stop talking and, and get to a place of safety. But in this manual for missionaries, the fifth point is opposition will follow you. And we know that in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, this example is given of Paul. And it says of Paul, or when he was still Saul, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats to the Christians. Murderous threats means slaughter. That's what it really translates to us, that Paul was pointing at them and saying, you keep this up, you're going to be 
dead. I'm going to kill you, is what he was basically saying. And, and so opposition from Saul was coming because of the disciples, the apostles. They were giving out the gospel message. And then Saul becomes a believer. His name is changed to Paul. And he's receiving the same opposition. And you get to the sixth point. One minute they will treat you like a god, and the next minute they will kill you. This happened to Jesus. Remember on Palm Sunday, rides in, Hosanna in the highest, you know, praise God. And they're, they're just giving him worship and lauding him. And the palm branches are going down. They're throwing their cloaks down. The next week, it's crucify the Christ. The first week, Hosanna in the highest. The next week, crucify the Christ. And even though he was the one bringing the message personally that he had devised with his Father and the Holy Spirit to give to us, to get us saved, they turned on him instantly. And so there can be people that you give the gospel to that eventually they'll just turn on you. They'll go away. And you have to be prepared for that. If you're a missionary or short-term ministry, a missionary, that can happen. So verse 21, it says, They preached the good news in the city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So they, they doubled back. Strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Yeah, he just got stoned. Yeah, it's going to be rough out there. But I just want to let you know, you're going to have to go through it if you want to enter the kingdom of God and be faithful to be a disciple and a communicator of the gospel. That is the thing that we're to be aware of. There's going to be affliction. There's going to be burdens. There's going to be sacrifices we have to make. And this is not something that would be considered the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine. You know, if you went to Africa and you went to the villages and you preached health, wealth, and prosperity, God wants you to be well. God wants you to be rich. It is not going to resonate over there. Same thing, Cambodia and Vietnam, many of the places in that 1040 window. They are just as poor as poor can be. Of course, here, I think we get off a little bit, uh, even quite a lot, in what we teach people that God wants us to be blessed. Yes, he does, but maybe not in this life, maybe even more so in the next life. And that's what we're supposed to focus on is the goal, the prize. That's what Paul said. I reach forth unto the things which are before me, forgetting those things which are behind. I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's his motivation. Here, we get old, we get crotchety, we bend over, we get sick, we go to pills, we go to doctors, and then we die. That, that's the way it goes. And it's all right. We can be comfortable with that. We won't be able to fix everything here. And God knows it too. He goes, that's all right. You can't fix everything. I'm not going to heal you in everything unless it's his will. But when you get to heaven, whew, it's going to be a party up there. You're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Your body's going to be perfect. And you're going to look at each other and go, look at you. No, look at you. How good. It's going to be a great thing. But it requires us to have the right mindset here. And to communicate that to others effectively. And so Paul and Barnabas, verse 23, appointed elders for each uh, in its church. And with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom he had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in, in Persia, uh, they went down to Italia. 
From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So the the final thing in this manual for missionaries is do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And so those who would oppose you, those who would seek to do violence to you, to mistreat you, even to kill you, don't fear them because we know we have an inheritance that is before us. And there are several examples of individuals like that. Moses, who returned to Egypt and saw Pharaoh. Ezekiel, who returned to the leaders of the Jews. Elijah had his Jezebel. Samson had his Philistines. And all of these people just continued. They they just kept pressing forward. So to apply all of this, how do we do this? Now, Paul gives a report And we know this is recorded by Luke, so he communicated it to Luke. Luke wrote it down. He also went back to Antioch and gave a report of everything that they had done. Now, if we are following Jesus the way that we're supposed to, we should be able to give a report, to come back to church or to go to home fellowship and say, I want to let you know what happened. I went out and shared the gospel here to this person maybe I didn't go out maybe you're at a family gathering and you share the gospel with somebody you should be able to communicate stories now if you say but I'm not an evangelist and I don't speak very well remember when God told Moses when Moses said I stutter he goes who made the mouth God said who made the mouth and God made the mouth and he's the one that can put words in your mouth it's just you have to be willing to go forward and say I have a question Do you go to church? Something simple as that. But can you imagine yourself going to someone else and saying, do you go to church? Would you feel anxiety just asking a person about that? Would you feel anxious if you asked somebody, do you know who Jesus Christ is? Now, this is the equivalent of cold calling. You know, somebody who's on the phone, a marketer, calls you up and says, hi, would you like to buy these encyclopedias? And No. And you hang up. It's like cold calling. But usually you have a relationship with some people, maybe not a long-term relationship, but some relationship where you can just ask them, hey, my pastor told me to ask you a question. And so I'm going to ask you a question. Use me as the fall guy. And, and go to them and say, I want to ask you, do you know who Jesus Christ is? Do you go to church? Would you like to know? Do you have eternal life? Basic questions, not difficult. You want to know more about it? Come to church. We'll let that guy explain it. But just come to church. Let me invite, I'll pick you up. Just something like that. What happens to us is we have so much here to distract us, not just our phones. I mean, traffic can distract you. San Diego, we have the weather that beats all weather throughout the entire world here in San Diego. Those things can distract us. Maybe you're building a garden. Maybe you're working on your house. Whatever it might be, you have these pursuits. It's okay. But make sure you take time. God wants us to have a joyful life. He doesn't want to take out all those things. But make sure you take time, dedicate it to God, and say, okay, I'm going to speak to this person so that you might be able to come back and have a testimony like Paul. 
like Barnabas. And all the other people who were fellowshipping in the church at Antioch, they were doing the same thing. They were going out. Now, not everybody feels comfortable doing that. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, grab somebody who does and go with them. And say, we need to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And so you can ask God, do you want me to go out and do some ministry or witnessing somewhere? Is there somebody you want me to witness to? Who do you want me to reach out to? If you ask God that question, God, who do you want me to reach out to? He's going to bring somebody to mind. That person. That's who you want to talk to. You know what? I was telling my wife on the worship list here today. uh, Sometimes I hear God speak. Uh, Like, for instance, uh, a couple weeks ago, Daryl will testify to this. In the last song, my guitar lost its battery power in the last song halfway through. God told me that morning battery in the guitar I didn't do it and so the the battery died here yesterday yesterday evening I got in the shower all of a sudden this song comes to my mind that forever the song we sang we sang it because when I got down to church here and I was working on the worship list for some reason the song forever was on the desktop what is that And, and then I went to do a search and Forever was right. There. Okay, I'm doing forever. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that song. Well, if you ask God, and I wasn't even asking so much, if you ask God, who should I talk to? He will tell you. You'll, you'll hear this. Talk to Phil. Talk to Henry. Who, whoever it is. Talk to Sue. And he'll bring it up. And then you can follow through and be obedient. You know, in the um, Old Testament, Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 26. This is called, and I think I'm going to pronounce this right. I can be corrected. The Berkat Kohanim. And it is, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. As I close here, the main thing we're supposed to focus on is what Jesus has done for us. And as we focus on that, that's good. That's wonderful. That's preeminent. But he also says, now be a disciple. Now go out there and do those things I would ask you to do. And as you do that, this passage applies. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we give you thanks for Paul and Barnabas and what they endured at the hand of opposition. I know that they were fearful for their lives in carrying out their mission. Father, I also understand we're not all called to that. But as you give us opportunity, may we take advantage of it. May we not ignore such a great salvation that we can offer to others. Give us boldness, Lord, even in the face of opposition. But mostly, give us your heart for those who are perishing. And give us a word of encouragement for those who are struggling, who believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen.